Hello, and welcome to this Sea Trade Maritime podcast. You're listening to me, Chris Heyman, Chairman of Sea Trade. And for this Learning from Leaders podcast, I've been talking to Chairman of Global Shipping, Logistics, and Offshore at Citigroup, Michael Parker. Michael joined Citibank in 1977 and became its global industry head 20 years later. So with a 36-year involvement in shipping finance, he's quite clearly the doyen of shipping bankers. He's been involved in a wide range of industry initiatives and is currently chairman of the Poseidon Principles Association, which was launched in New York last year. Our conversation took place over a video call in late November 2020, and I started by asking Michael when he first realized the full implications of the pandemic, what his thoughts were about how it might impact the industry. I look back now, seven, eight months, whatever it is, to those days, and of course, we were getting very engaged in a number of these broader decarbonisation initiatives. And suddenly, you know, we're hit by something none of us have experienced in our lifetimes. And I think the first thing that came to mind, as one saw through the whole issue around PPE, was supply chains and how supply chains were going to be impacted by lockdown and, and to what extent that the physical lockdown would hamper people's ability to source the necessary things to keep the economies going and to keep people fed and, of course, the, the health systems protected. But at the same time, one had this strange thing of the Saudis and the Russians falling out over oil production. And so we had this double hit to energy demand, both from COVID and the shutting down of large parts of the economy and the collapse in oil prices. And so you had this sort of strange thing where different parts of the maritime sphere were being suddenly affected very differently. So the cruise industry shut down. The grindingly slow recovery in offshore drilling sort of came to a dead stop, of course, with the fall in the oil price. And then you had the contango trade in the tanker market. And so you had these different things moving in different directions. And I think fundamentally, those were three sectors with a very sharp response or reaction, if you like, in terms of the underlying market. But as we know, fundamentally, apart from the tanker market, the dry bulk market and the container market in particular, quite key to you know what's going on in the real economy, apart clearly from sort of energy sources. So I think one sort of watched that. And we spent a lot of time talking, particularly to our big container operator and clients around what was actually happening. And I think it became fairly clear early on that actually they were managing okay. And part of that was because as we were going into our lockdown in Europe and the United States, China was beginning to come out of it. And I think that's a key thing around the shipping industry is that it's a global industry and therefore it's moving cargoes around the world. And so to some extent, the worst that might have happened to a shipping industry, as has happened to aviation, just didn't really happen. One saw the ability of the shipping industry to manage through this, with the one exception, clearly, of the whole seafarer issue, which still needs to be addressed for any future situation like this. As we look at a world which is now addressing a degree of optimism, 
How will the major market sectors that you mentioned fare in the year ahead, in your opinion? I mean, we see the container trades booming, really, in what has been a period of economic slowdown. How do you account for that, Michael? Well, I think, you know, and I know you're going to sort of take me back to a dim, distant past when I had more hair and more to look forward to, maybe, and that is the one thing that I think particularly learned post the financial crisis and dealing with that, which was a significant problem that the shipping and container, in particular container sector, had to deal with, is the management of supply. So what we're now seeing, if you like, with the sort of, whether it's a V or a K, whatever the recovery, and the, and the vaccine news is very positive around a strong recovery in 2021, I suspect there will be a very strong recovery in the short term as people refill inventory, the economies go back to work. That doesn't necessarily, of course, deal with the debt issue that all the economies have to solve. But I think it comes about through management of capacity. The, the big thing for shipping has always been excess supply. And so I think what we're seeing in the container sector, and they learn through blank sailings, we see a tightness of physical boxes being in the right place, and we have seen that before. And so it's that capacity management, which I think is very important. You may have heard Soren Skou, the CEO of AP Molinesk announcing their third quarter results, being asked a question about plans to order more ships. And, and so you've got a situation in where the shipping companies are not looking for significant capital expenditure in the next few years. And part of that, of course, is also to do with the decarbonisation agenda. So I think it's management of supply, learning the lessons from the past, and the recovery in demand, again, puts shipping into a strong position coming out of this. And it's maintaining that self-discipline that I think will be very important. And a word about the bulk sectors, both dry and liquid bulk. Well, I think one sees in the Chinese growth for next year, what's forecast, that should bode well for the dry cargo market. There are obviously political issues with Australia, which may also help, you know, ton miles in the dry market. I think the tanker market, you know, a lot will depend, of course, on how harsh the winter is in the Northern Hemisphere in the next few months. But again, with the sort of move towards cleaner consumption of energy, you know, that may benefit gas more than the tanker market. But I think there will be that recovery in, in demand. Okay. Michael, some of these themes will be debated and perhaps we'll come back to them later on. But I'd like to take you back now to the beginning of your career. You joined Citibank, I think, in the late 1970s and became involved with the shipping market in the early 80s. So paint us a picture for a moment of the kind of shipping industry that you went into as a young banker at uh, Citi. And talk a little bit, if you can, about some of the changes that you've seen over that period of time. One of the things that I have done sort of every year is sort of look back from time to time just to remind myself of certain things that we were doing at certain points in the past. And I look at the list of our clients and the names are still many of the same names that were there in the 70s and even the 60s. And we have a franchise that has, you know, goes back at least sort of 70 years to our well-known chairman of Citibank called Walter Riston, who before he became chairman was one of the sort of founders of the modern shipping finance. So when I was asked to move into our shipping business to handle some workouts, 
you know, came across this very entrepreneurial, very private industry with a number of big public companies like P&O at the time. And I walked into being explained to me that the problems had been the massive ordering of ships in the very early 80s. And then demand collapsed because of the global recession in the early 80s. And so one had a situation where ships were being delivered out of yards. It cost about $40 million for a Suez Max or whatever it was at the time, and, and were worth 10 million or even less on, on delivery. And so you had this immediate mismatch between market value based upon their ability to earn money and, and the contract cost in the shipyard. And I was told at that time, here we're talking about 84, 85, this is the worst it can get. Well, we, we know that subsequent events have shown that there are different forms of worse, I suppose. I think one of the interesting things is that actually not a lot has changed until quite recently in shipping. I mean, it's been through cycles. It's a cyclical industry. But as I mentioned earlier, I think the mismanagement, if you like, of supply has always been the bane of the industry's problems, allied with sort of interference, if you like, from competition authorities from time to time, somehow convinced that when rates go up, there must be some wrong reason for that. There have been a couple of sectors, as we know, in the chemical sector and the car carrying sector where there, there was there were issues. But generally speaking, the, the conference system worked with the conference system and, 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 and things work. That private control, if not always private companies, but public companies, for the most part with private control, I think provided a stability of ownership that kept other people outside, but also I think held back the development of the industry. And what I found in my sort of 35 plus, 36 years being involved in the industry is it's always events from outside the industry that have a dramatic positive or negative consequence for the industry. And I think we're now going through what I'd regard as a series of positive events, actually starting with the financial crisis, because it was the financial crisis that killed off that excess supply of capital from the banking system that was going into create unnecessary capacity in shipping. And a number of well-known banks, especially German banks, you know, have disappeared as a result of that. So really, since the financial crisis and the consequences of that, I think we, we've now, with these other big issues around decarbonisation, digitalization, things have moved into a point where the shipping industry these outside its control, but actually their issues, which the industry can work with to its benefit. And I think that is the big change. So you could sort of say for 30 of my 36 years in shipping, not very much change. It was a question of were we positioned with the right people, with the right sort of exposure at the right time and, and managing that through those cycles like every other bank to the last five or six years where, yes, we've had to deal with the fallout of the financial crisis on most sectors of shipping, but the recovery phase now is a very strong one allied to these other bigger global issues which the industry will benefit from. So I think it's the most exciting time in my shipping career and, in fact, my banking career, you know, what's going on now. If you look at some of the forces that have driven such change as there has been in, in that period of time. I mean, I'd like to pick out a couple, corporatization, consolidation. The structure of the industry has clearly changed a great deal. Talk a, a little bit about those two issues and how you see them folding out in the future. Well, I think the great questions that you and others who 
arranged shipping finance conferences was, you know, public versus private and then the perennial one year, where's the money coming from? And then the next year was, there's too much money in shipping. And we went through those sort of different experiences. I think the tapping of equity markets in the States and the bond market back in the 90s, and we did the first high-yield bond issues in shipping for Ellison, the Greek shipping company, and, and, and CSAV at time in Chile. Beginning to tap those markets, the use of the syndicated loan market, we were one of the founders of that market. And in the early days of shipping, we, we, we headed those league tables before our Norwegian competitors sort of took over wanting to do all those deals. So it was that move into less bilateral type of banking and into broader syndicated loans, into the bond market and into the equity market. So that degree of corporatization, of course, happened because owners wanted to seek other forms of capital. There are some very well-known ship owners who have chosen not to do that and have avoided many of the problems of people who did do that. So I think the answer is it isn't sort of, yes, you need to be public or not. It's actually about when you are public, how you manage the company and how you manage your shareholders. But I think the other change that is coming, this goes to the role of banks in the shipping industry. As ships became more expensive, so banks provided more and more money. So your modern LNG carried 150 to $200 million was not a problem for banks to finance, including some without any form of charter, at least when, when ordered. So the banking system until the financial crisis provided that capital and, of course, provided it too cheaply. And there were reasons for that to do with the bar committee and the bar rules interpreted or managed differently in different parts of the world. But what now has happened is scale has got much bigger. Economies of scale have got stronger and the cost of capital is now a competitive aspect. So if you're at the top of the industry, your cost of capital is so much cheaper than if you are a small owner. And it wasn't 10, 15 years ago, it wasn't. And so we've, we've, we've now got those distinctions which are going to drive consolidation, are going to drive scale. So size does matter, but profitability matters too. You've got to be able to generate the cash flow to pay your debt, whether it's bank debt or public bond debt. And I think that's where we're going to see the investments needed for digitalization, decarbonization, whatever the big theme is, just are going to, you know, scale will benefit by driving down your cost of capital. I think that's where we'll see consolidation take place. I think the other aspect is one of the factors of decarbonization is the different industry sectors who are looking at partnering with the sectors they need, and energy and shipping are two good examples. This development of, let's call it the net zero club, if people are making commitments to reduction of carbon emissions in their supply chain, they want to work with companies that have not only made the same commitments, but also have the ability to deliver on those commitments. And I think that's where it's easier for larger companies to find larger partners. That doesn't automatically mean the small or medium-sized ship owner can't be very successful in shipping. But I think in certain sectors, it's more likely to drive consolidation. Again, in order to attract the necessary capital that's going to come with the investments needed for your ultimately your zero emission vessels. It's shipping 
has been subsidized by ship owners for far too long. When ship owners don't do that anymore, and the rest of society pays for the true cost of transport by sea, the numbers will get bigger, and that will need bigger companies able to access financial markets to attract that capital. Okay, we can come on to uh, climate change in more detail in a second, Michael. But before we leave, you know, the 30-year spread of your experience in the industry, can you pick out any single individual who you feel has made a particular impact on the industry, a visionary, a leader for shipping? The one person that one always wanted to know what he thought and what he was going to do was Nurse McKinney Muller. Now, in a way, a lot of what's happened in that company has happened since he died. But actually, if you think about what Maersk is as the largest container shipping company and what that will mean for the role of shipping in the global supply chain. He wasn't the founder of container shipping. Many people before, like Malcolm McLean and parts of P&O, predated Maersk going into container shipping. But what he created has been followed by you know, the highly professional management teams that he put in place and have succeeded those. I think will be a key part of what drives the role of shipping in that future supply chain. So the example they have set, I think that leadership they have set, I think is going to be quite key for how the rest of the shipping industry fares as part of you know, the fourth industrial revolution, if you like, or even the fifth now, the role of shipping in that. You know, he's not the only one, but I, th- I think he's someone that I would sort of pick out, I suppose. Okay. Michael, you mentioned the future. Let's turn our attention forwards now and consider the issue of climate change. I mean, clearly, we're looking towards the impact of a Biden administration. We're looking at COP26 in uh, November of next year. The issue of climate change is going to be front of mind for the industry and every other industry going forward. How do you assess the shipping industry's response to the climate change challenge so far, and also the response of the industry regulator? Controversial question, Chris, which I will do my best to steer through the minefield you have set me. First of all, I think the industry as a whole is responding very well little bit slow, but the uptake for, for example, the Getting to Zero Coalition, now over 150 members, 14 governments, the work that we've been doing during COVID, some excellent work, which is helping drive that agenda forward and bringing lots of companies, including cargo owners, with us. We said at the first meeting we had in Copenhagen in late February, which, funnily enough, was on the cusp of the outbreak because the Italian People coming from Italy were asked not to come or decided not to come. And we didn't really think we would all be in a similar situation weeks later. But we said then that we couldn't wait for the regulator. And I think what one has to see is the regulator is a United Nations body. It is made up of governments through its representation and was always going to struggle to keep the pace with what industry has decided it needs to do. Industries being dictated to, if you like, or its thinking is driven by broader customer and societal uh, and shareholder and investor objectives that I think have accelerated within the industry in a way that the political aspects of the regulator make that difficult to keep pace with. But I think your reference to COP26 is very important. 
That is a United Nations conference um, led by the UN Secretary General and, and, and it'll be the UK government that is the host, if you like, for that in Glasgow. I think what COP26 can do for the shipping industry is to help uh, encourage or force, if you like, if that's the right word, but, but arm twist may be a better word, the IMO through its same membership, the UN membership, to accelerate some of these regulatory changes. So, but I feel, and this is, I think, the question you're really sort of asking is, will the global nature of the industry suffer from regional regulation as the European Union insists on inserting shipping into its ETS? Or will the IMO be able to maintain the global position that it was asked to do at Kyoto and reaffirmed in, in Paris to be responsible for the policies around the decarbonisation of, of the industry. I hope that the degree of cooperation to make both of those things work. I do think that the Climate Change Conference is going to be key to making that happen. So Glasgow, I think, is a key event for the shipping industry and for the IMO. Michael, in the introduction, we mentioned your very considerable involvement in the development of the so-called Poseidon Principles. Give us an update on where that initiative now stands. And when last I looked, uh, there was, uh, I think, 18 different financial institutions signed up representing a portfolio of $150 billion. Has that number increased? And what are the prospects for further commitments from other countries, other institutions going forward? We're at the key point of the first reporting under the Poseidon Principles, which is the emissions data that ship owners had to provide under the first year of this DCS regulation, IMO regulation. And we are committed to report the signatories who had signed up in 20. 19, so actually it's 14 or 15, will be reporting uh, at the end of, uh, will be reporting at the end of November and published probably mid-December. We will be reporting the alignment of our individual portfolios with the IMO's 2050, 50% reduction in emissions trajectory, the current policy commitment of the IMO. We had three other institutions sign up at the beginning of this year. There are several other institutions, we believe, close to signing, uh, financial institutions, lenders to the industry. We had hoped to have many more sign up during the year, but that has been delayed by COVID. Physical travel clearly has been compromised in terms of our ability to to go and talk to people. I think the other thing is a number of, uh, I know from my own conversations with a number of institutions, are waiting to see how those of us who are going to report what we do report and, and how we've gathered the data. So we are expecting a significant number of institutions to sign up early in the first quarter of next year when they've seen how those of us reporting have reported and they have a better understanding of what that means. The other key question, which often I get asked, is when will the Chinese institutions sign up? Because of obviously the role of the Chinese lessors in the industry in providing finance. I'm optimistic that they will sign up next year. I think the commitment by President Xi for China to go net zero in terms of carbon emissions by 2060 is a key signal from the Chinese government of their commitment to a net zero target. And I think that will encourage 
the Chinese financial institutions, who in two meetings in Shanghai and Beijing last year were very sympathetic and very supportive of what we're trying to do. And again, I think it'll be that combination of a national commitment by the Chinese government to support decarbonization initiatives and an understanding of how those of us who signed up in June last year are actually reporting. So we'll see the results at the end of this year. They won't be individual ship owner results, but they will be the portfolio results of 50, 14 or 15 major lending institutions. And I think that will help uh, help people's understanding in a way that would encourage more people to sign up. Michael, you mentioned earlier on Mess McKinney Muller and the influence that he has had on the industry, and you mentioned Malcolm McLean as well. We're looking to see the emergence of a fully integrated logistic system in world commerce. And I want you just to look forward 10 years, 15 years. What will be the role of uh, the shipping industry within that integrated system? in the future, in your opinion? About three years ago, we identified in City for different reasons, maybe, not just shipping, clearly, but digitalization and decarbonization went hand in hand. Digitalization you know, affects everyone in the way we do business. And so, like electricity, if you like, it's something that is just going to be a way of doing business. But how it impacts different industries is clearly important. Shipping is a very inefficient business in some respects, which is the amount of paperwork. And so digitalization and the ability to make trade more efficient is clearly helped by that. I think the shipping industry is going to go, in a way, back to what it was back in the 60s, when to some extent it was funded by cargo, i.e. the cash flow that ship owners had to invest in new ships was part of the growing global economy post-war, and we're going to have the same sort of thing happen again, where the cargo owners, whether they are your Walmarts or your Shells or whatever particular industrial sector it is, is going to want to partner with the maritime sector in driving an efficient and clean and safe industry. And so an industry that has regulated, but unlike aviation, maybe less regulated for various reasons because of outside crews, of course, because of consumer safety. I think it'll be an industry that will have higher barriers to entry because it will require much more significant capital expenditure in the new type of equipment. Although a lot of that, of course, is going to be led by the energy sector that has to build the distribution and infrastructure around the alternative fuels that are going to help decarbonize the global economy as a whole. Shipping isn't going to have its own special fuel anymore. Shipping will be part of that change in the overall energy sector. But I think a lot of the speculative aspects of shipping that we have historically seen will disappear. And part of that is that there won't be the banks to just lend money against an asset, it's going to come out of the capital markets, it's going to be driven by environmental issues, it's going to be driven by return on capital issues. And I think we will see a more utility-like shipping industry that, having learned how to manage its capacity, looks to remain profitable you know, over time, where it will still be cyclical to some extent because of the global economy, but it will be a much more balanced sector 
And there will be, I think, some blurred lines between, as you see in, in what some of the big container operators like Maersk are doing, between you know what is really shipping, what is logistics. And I think logistics and the overall supply chain is where shipping will go in certain sectors. There'll be some sectors where it'll be that pure maritime that remains the most important thing. What I do think is important, and this is a change in the psychology, I think, is that the ship will no longer be the most important physical aspect of shipping because it's going to go back to the cargo because it's the cargo that is going to define, well, obviously the ton miles get defined that way, but it'll be the emissions being defined by that. So it'll be around what is the cargo contributing to the environment negatively or positively uh, and, and how is that driving the technological innovation to ever ever more efficient, uh, safe, obviously, as well, but ever more efficient supply chains. And the globalization aspect, I think, will continue. I think one short-term political issues, shipping will push through those because I think people know that trade is good for their economies and good for the health and wealth of their people. So I think shipping will have a very important role in that, but it's going to be much more closely tied to other industry sectors, more regulated, and that is just, I think, going to lead to bigger, more consolidation and, and bigger companies in all those sectors that are able to deliver that safely and financially more securely than we've seen in the last 30 years. We can't, we can't go on having regular defaults every time you know, the shipping industry decides to raise a lot of unnecessary capital and speculate on ships that no one needs. So the market will help regulate that. The capital markets will help regulate that. And I think the political leaders will be regulating the environmental issues much more proactively. And whether it is through the IMO, the EU or the US government, regionally or globally, this is a very good thing for shipping. And very briefly, Michael, the role of the third-party ship management company in this new world that you've just described? I see no reason why it doesn't continue to exist, because I think people bring different skills. There are degrees of outsourcing in every industry in terms of expertise, and I see no reason why big ship management companies shouldn't be able to exist in that sort of environment. I think one of the things we are likely to see in shipping is what's happened in the aviation sector, that as you get more standard, particularly when we get to the new technology, the new ships, that it's an obvious thing, as in the aviation sector, that large leasing companies could come in and own those ships, which can then be operated by the operators today. You know, so I think that we should anticipate there being quite a lot of change and and faster. Although at the same time, I also believe that there will be quite a long transition between existing modern ships today being retrofitted that will serve out a useful full life, new ships that can be built that will be able to use some of the zero emission fuels. And then by 2030, we will have some of those new invested technologies around hydrogen, ammonia, or whatever the, the, the bigger scale alternatives are going to become. Finally, Michael, if you had the opportunity to speak to the young Michael Parker, recently graduated from Oxford with a degree in PPE, about career prospects, and you were having that conversation now in 2020, would you recommend 
to yourself a career in the shipping industry? I never expected to have as much fun as I've had in my career involved with the shipping industry. And one of the comments made by many of my friends in the industry or in the banking sector is that a lot of these changes are going to make the industry a lot less fun. I don't think that will happen overnight. I would recommend someone, and it depends what you mean by the industry, because of course, if you're in finance, that's one aspect of the industry. But I think generally speaking, I would for the simple reason that the shipping industry, which likes to hide itself behind less regulation and various other things that have obscured uh, its contribution to the global economy, that all these changes we're going through now are beginning to make people realize how important the shipping industry is. And so the opportunity for young people now, as those changes take place, to embrace those changes is going to create a fantastic, exciting global industry, again, around global supply chains, where the recognition of the importance of this industry to the global economy will become much clearer. So it'll be a very different type of career, maybe, to the one that I started at, or a person of my age going into the industry would have had much more around the ship, maybe, or a particular type of trade. I think it'll be a slightly different type of career, but I think it will be exciting in a different way. And I think that's one of the things that the shipping industry is beginning to get to grips with, that the changes that we're now working on, we're trying to make happen, are actually going to be hugely positive for the industry. And I think COVID, in a way, has helped accelerate a lot of that. The one issue, as we started at the beginning of this conversation, is the recognition of the role of the seafarer is something that must get addressed coming out of this crisis, because we talk about supply chains and we talk about key workers. And you asked the first question about you know, the impact on different sectors. If those seafarers had not kept ships moving and cargoes moving around the world, many of us would have been in a much more difficult economic and, and personal situation. And that importance of the role of the industry and the employees of the industry is something that must get properly recognized in future. I think you make a very powerful point. Michael, it's been fascinating. Thank you very much for your time. And thank you for joining us in this series of conversations. Michael Parker, best wishes. Thank you, Chris. Always a pleasure. Thank you for listening to this Learning from Leaders podcast brought to you by Sea Trade Maritime. You've been listening to Michael Parker, Chairman of Global Shipping, Logistics and Offshore of uh, Citigroup, talking to me about the past, the present and the future of the maritime industry and its financial landscape. Don't forget, if you like this podcast, you can listen to more in the Learning from Leaders series online, as well as a whole host of additional on-demand podcasts, webinars, and white papers at seatrade-maritime.com. We hope you've enjoyed listening, and we'll see you soon.